Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, the evolution of the spritz from Aperol to Zinfandel. We'll hear how the simple spritz took the world by storm and what might be next for this most refreshing of summer serves. Joel Harrison and James Stimson are my guests. The spritz, once it was a simple splash of something, maybe a dash of soda. Now it's a a global drinks sensation with Aperol spritz at the vanguard and a whole drinks list of alternatives in the best bars. Drinks developers are working on the latest iterations to keep us satiated with spritz. So for a sense of how it started, where it's heading, and of course, uh, the best ideas for a summer spritz, uh, we're joined by regular here on The Drinking Hour, Joel Harrison, spirits columnist at Club Onologique, uh, regular on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch and author of 60 Second Cocktails, most recently, and also James Stimson. Uh, James, a senior brand manager at Franklin and Sons and also founder of 45 Vermouth. Uh, he cut his teeth in uh, the development of uh, drinks at the Spirit of Manchester Distillery. Uh, so, uh, gents, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you. Hi, thank you. It's great to have you both. Before we get on to where the spritz is now, and frankly, it's pretty much everywhere, let, let's do a little bit of history. Joel, you like your history. Uh, let's talk to you about this first. Um, where, where did the spritz come from? So as you said quite rightly, David, it's, it's the, the sort of roots of the spritz is really simple. It's, it's, it's wine with a, with a splash of, of seltzer water and sparkling water. And it really kind of goes back to the kind of Austro-Hungarian soldiers who were drinking beer. Uh, and wanted something a little bit more refreshing. So they were they were taking to drinking stronger wines and adding, uh, diluting them down with some sparkling water. And of course, the sparkling water was quite natural in that area at the time as well. Um, and then after the uni- unification of uh, the Italian kingdom, really, in, sort of the eight- in 1861, the drink uh, kind of remained popular with Italians and especially the farmers who would take strong wines into the fields and then dilute them down with with spritz water, um, soda water, uh, thus the birth of the spritz. And then it started to sort of grow legs and develop a little bit, really. And, and what you got was the Italians starting to add locally produced vermouths and bitters in. Um, and that's where we've really got to today with, I guess, the best known version of the being the Aperol spritz. Um, 
but it's yeah, it's it's effectively a wine shandy if you really want to be, <laughs> if you really really want to kind of drill it down into something, so some something a bit more savoury than a than a than a beer based shandy. Yeah, James, I like the idea of a, a wine shandy. I've never really thought about it like that. Um, the spritz and the spritzer, uh, they're the same thing, right? Uh, as far as I'm aware, David, yeah, the the, the spritz and the spritzer, this or ein spritzen in Germany, are all, all the all the same or German, sorry, are all the same things. Adding a little dash of water to that wine, as Joel quite rightly said, to um, soften the blow of of the wine uh, is the is the story I know. Yeah, exactly right. That and it makes for something sort of more summery and refreshing as well, doesn't it, James? It certainly today conjures up imagery of of a summer veranda or a, or a terrace somewhere in the sunshine, uh, being being able to relax and stop your thoughts for a while while you sip on this uh, light, refreshing drink. Yeah, Joel, you mentioned the astonishing success of the Aperol Spritz. I- I'm guessing. You've been uh, around a while. Uh, you're a bit younger than me, but you've been uh, uh, doing the drinks thing for a long time. So you must have kind of witnessed this take off. Yeah, it's it's one of those drinks that's become a ubiquitous serve kind of globally now. And um, I mean, I've been I was in I was in Miami recently, and and, and people were drinking it there. And it's sort of it, it's got far and wide. And it's again, it's one of those drinks that I find fascinating because it's its base isn't still wine. Its base is, is sparkling wine. So you have prosecco, you've got aperol, obviously, which is like a kind of lighter version of Campari. It's owned by Campari. It's a lighter version. It's lower in ABV. It's a bit clearer. It's a little less bitter. Um, and soda water. So you've got kind of two types of sparkling and and your kind of bitters in there too. Obviously filled in a, a wine glass or a goblet with lots of ice and a slice of orange. I mean, it's devastatingly simple, but devastatingly delicious. And I think one of the things about it is that in the same way with gin and tonic, you know, which came first, the quality gin or the quality tonic it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing with the Aperol spritz the rise of Prosecco and the ease and the availability of Prosecco has driven that as as, as, as a cocktail and and you know I'm I'm, I'm very much a, a cocktail and spirits drinker wine is a, a hobby not a profession of mine but for me personally I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an enormous champagne fan I'm a big Prosecco drinker as well but Prosecco does lend itself more as a sparkling wine to being mixed and to being used in cocktails and I think this is this is the perfect vehicle for for, for, for Prosecco to be rounded out with that Aperol bitterness and then lengthened with that that bit of refreshing soda water. Yeah candidly Joel it's also quite a good way of using a rather average Prosecco and, and sadly these days there is some you know quite a lot of industrial kind of um, average Prosecco. This this kind of is a great uh, vehicle for that as well, isn't it? I think so. And uh, a friend of mine was saying recently they had a, a birthday party for their for their wife and they bought some Prosecco, like 10 bottles of Prosecco. And by the end of the night, there was 20 bottles of Prosecco. And they said it was like a, sort of, it was like a hydra. You can't you can, you can kill this thing. You can yeah. cut its head off and it grew two more. And uh, I think that's thus, thus is the popularity of Prosecco at the moment. But there, but there's no, no better way to use it than in, in a spritz. And in a shameless plug, but in 60 Second Cocktails, my latest book, we've got, we've got a few drinks that are spritz-based. We've got a Douro spritz, which uses 
uh, Prosecco, which is Prosecco and, and, and a Ruby port. Uh, we've got um, one using Mezcal, and then we've got a non-alcoholic one using a, a balsamic vinegar shrub, which is, is, is really nice. doesn't use Prosecco, obviously, but uses sparkling water. And I think there's, you know, there's always a place for these long, refreshing, sparkling drinks. And I think for me, soda water is such a key in that. I mean, to move on from Prosecco to soda water for a moment, you know, Prosecco is great. And you're, and you're right, David, that it, it can be a little, a little, uh, yeah, it, it, it can lack a little personality sometimes for drinking on its own. And uh, when it's overly sort of industrial, industrially produced, but it makes a brilliant mixer, but it also pairs brilliantly with soda water and, and, and bitters. And I think that's what's really so special about Prosecco in that respect. And James, you have been in uh, drinks development uh, for uh, quite some time. Uh, were you there? Uh, this is like one of those "Where were you when this happened?" Uh, questions. But you, you've also uh, watched the inexorable rise of Aperol spritz. I, I find it such an interesting drink um, and, and an interesting ingredient to, to start a drink with, especially when you look at exactly that—the rise versus the reality of the actual product. I think they've they've done an incredible job of marketing this. What I said before, this idea of relaxing on a terrace and slowing your life down for for a few minutes while you drink this. It's, you know, the moment you mention spritz to somebody, the image pops into their head of, of sunshine, that bright orange color. The interesting part for me is uh, similarly to, to the way sort of Coke, uh, Coca-Cola markets itself, Aperol really is a liquid that most of its consumers probably don't understand. Um, and I think if you were to ask them what was in Aperol, you could possibly even change their mind from the course of the selection of that drink but it's it's marketed so well and it's it's delivery it's visual is so uh, impressive that i think it just it, it drifts across a terrace the moment someone orders one and the next table and the next table and it just knocks over it's yeah. very interesting james is absolutely spot on there when he, he talks about it being a, a kind of reflection of a moment and mm. it's a real postcard of a drink isn't it in that respect and you know, be it, you could be in a, a, a back garden in Rotherham or a or or, 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 a, or a or a terrace on a flat in in Richmond, and and you pour yourself a, an Aperol spritz, and it transports you to to the Riviera, really, or somewhere a little bit different. And I think that's what's really nice about it. And it's yesless is it's inextricably linked with Italy because of its ingredients, but also it it, it translates to anywhere, and it, it takes sunshine anywhere with it, and you can drink one. You know, as I said, it's someone in Miami recently as easily as you can in Milan. And I think that's what's really, really good about it. Yeah. James, what is in Aperol then? Because people listening might have thought, have we got sort of crushed worms in there or something? I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> this sounds frightening. Well, it's, it's, there's various bitter ingredients in Aperol. Its, it's base is mainly orange citrus. It is, it's, sits within the Amaro category um, or Amari category when there's more than one. So, I mean, I, to be honest, I fully don't understand the recipe myself. I'll be honest with that. But um, what I know is what it is and what category it sits in. And I know that I enjoy drinking it as the ingredient it is, but will also get pulled into the world of spritz if one appears on a sunny terrace. And straight away, as, as Joel just said, that postcard, I'm immediately wanting to order a bowl of olives and some meat and some cheeses to go with it as well it just it's just so synonymous with a certain space in time yeah no I agree with that when I first encountered Aperol which um, I'm thinking might have been sort of 15 possibly even 20 years ago certainly no further than that a friend of mine uh, produced it uh, having been on holiday to Milan 
And my partner and I didn't really know what to do with it. So we we mixed it. I think we mixed it with some sparkling water. And we kind of made a, a slightly bitter Fanta. That's what it tasted <laughs> like. And uh, it's so disappointing. Whereas now, I mean, now everybody knows what to do with it, don't they? It's, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's the ultimate sort of quick fix sort of cocktail substitute, isn't it, Joel? It is. And I... It, 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 What's nice about it is it almost kind of nods in that direction too of, of the Americano. So the Americano mm. being like a Negroni, but take out the gin and lengthen with, with sparkling water and uh, allegedly a drink made because the uh, Negronis were too strong for the Americans. So they added sparkling water and, and called it an Americano. But if, you, if you're if you in the wrong bar at the wrong time and you order one, you end up with a coffee, which is never, <laughs> it's never much fun. But uh, but yeah, it's that, it's that idea that people have got, they've got roles for these products these days. And whether it's Aperol in an Aperol spritz, whether it's Campari in an Americano or a Negroni, you know, people know what to do with Kahlua in an espresso martini. You know, these are, these are bottles that previously would have, you may have had, in a drink on holiday and brought home with you uh, because you loved it on holiday, like that little holiday romance. But there's no, but then it, it makes no sense. It doesn't translate into what you're doing at home. But now they do. And I think that's what's really special about uh, the development of cocktail culture over the last 150 years, really, is that we've, we, we now have a canon of classic cocktails, which keeps getting built on. It keeps getting added to where, where these really special ingredients are used. And actually, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it, it stops at, at Aperol because if you go to Venice, one of the drinks that they have there is called Select. Oh. And it's, it's the sort of Venetian version of, yeah. uh, of, of a bitter, bitter aperitif. And they use that in there. So you have a Select uh, spritz. And that, I love it. I think it's a great product, but it's, it's very much of its, of its place and its time. And, and David, I think you'll probably know better than, than, than maybe either of us in terms of the Italian regionalization of the consumption of spirits and wines, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's, you rarely ask for a wine from outside the region you're in. And therefore that idea of different variations on different aperitifs and and bitters in different regions of Italy, I mean, you get different versions of the quote unquote Aperol spritz around the country. And one of my favourites actually is the select, the select spritz in in Venice. Yeah, me too. And I was in a bar some time ago, you know, the uh, Venetians can be a little, a little kind of um, (laughs) truculent sometimes. And uh, I went to a particular bar and asked for, I think I might have asked for a Campari spritz because I prefer that. And, and the guy behind the bar said, no, (laughs) Um, you you can have this and so you know um, uh, chastened uh, we we did and it's uh, it's delicious because for me select feels um, if there was a spectrum between Aperol and Campari then uh, select feels like it's two-thirds of the way towards Campari from Aperol would you concur with that yeah Yeah, I would. I, I I would absolutely agree with that. James, do you, do you think the same? I was just nodding away frantically in agreement there. It's a perfect way of placing that. Great. Yeah. You're a select fan as well, are you, James? I'm a, I'm a huge select fan. I was really lucky just recently to have uh, been able to try a, a bottle from the 1960s, which was wow. just mind-blowing. Wow. Um, and shameless plug for me, myself, I, I tried... The, the today's select mixed with our pineapple and almond soda and it and that was a just a very straightforward way of elevating a spritz to another level that's exactly what we're what we're talking about at Franklinson's yeah just elaborate on that then James so what are you seeking to do um, to kind of partner these kinds of drinks and develop the spritz as joel put at the start the the spritz is a and i think you said david as well the spritz is a very simple cocktail in origin and for us being a 
soda tonic mixer company, the scope with which we can approach that cocktail is is enormous. Actually, when you start breaking it down it's in its constituent parts, we can really go in very many different directions, which which just becomes a perfect carrier or vehicle for our um, products. So we're, we're looking to show off, I guess, the largest breadth and range in our products whilst using a simple carrier, the spritz cocktail, I guess, is the most simple way of explaining what we're doing uh, this year. But... The, the main part of that is showing uh, just how adaptable our range of products are and showing how much how much diversity we can bring to a drink. Um, and I think the best way to show diversity in an ingredient is to keep the base simple. So the spritz works perfectly. Yeah. And when you're developing these complementary mixers, um, are you looking to... Uh, is it always a kind of yin and yang? So bitter with sweet or uh, or do you kind of do um sort of some of the same stuff again in in the development of these kinds of drinks i think you can play with that bitter sweet balance it doesn't necessarily need to be outrageously bitter and outrageously sweet in balance um i mean obviously aperol shows that but we 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 tend to find bitterness in other areas that that maybe just humble nods to the bitter start of that drink if you know what i mean um but yeah, we, we are always looking to develop uh, our products, not just in a state of yin and yang with the with drinks in the industry, but also in 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 balance with market trends and in balance with gut instincts from the business um, and where we see flavors sort of sort of going as well. So actually, um, our our mixes aren't necessarily specifically aimed at spritz, but they just work extremely well with it. Joel, that bitter sensation, that is one of Italy's many sort of great gastronomic exports, isn't it? It is, and it's fantastic to see that come through in drinks, really, because not. I think there's a certain consumer of cocktails who believe they should be sweet, sort of sweet treat. And actually, cocktails and mixed drinks... Uh, their flavour profile should span a wide spectrum. You know, everything from from herbaceous and, and bitter through to sweet and sweet and unctuous. And I think that's one of the roles that Italian vermouth plays, uh, as opposed to French vermouth. Actually, uh, Italian vermouth tends to be more bitter than than, than French vermouth, and um, and it adds that it brings forward that bitterness. And obviously, like you were saying, David, lengthening your your apérol with with sparkling water, will you will just end up with a sort of slightly odd tasting bitter Fanta but when you bring that in as part of a sort of wider team and you've got things like the sweetness of Prosecco and you've got you know the coolness of ice and you've got the squeeze of of orange from a wedge of orange in there it really does open up the flavors and and it it provides a really vital element and you're seeing actually more and more Amaro bars opening up around around especially around the UK you've got um one called Hey Paolo in Edinburgh that's fantastic. And we've got another one called Amaro in London in Kensington, all fantastic. And they're all based on this idea of slightly bitter Italian flavours. And it's it, it, it's great to see the demand for that rising. Yeah, it's mm. a wonderful thing. James, have you noticed the Brits sort of developing a taste for these bitter flavours? Well, I guess the, the wonderful thing about those specific ingredients, Amaro and Vermouth, is they... They, they tend to encompass a lot of those flavor profiles in one spirit, in one liquid, don't they? You will get bitter, herbaceous, unctuously sweet, fruit, spice. It all occurs in the same one liquid. So it becomes a 
again, a perfect um, ingredient to draw out in one direction or another to take it down the slightly fruitier route or down the the more herbaceous route or to use it as a bitter balance. So, and I, and I think cocktails generally, according to all trends, are on the rise. So it makes sense, stands to reason that an ingredient like a vermouth or an amaro would be rising along with that. I personally love to see amaro and vermouth bars popping up it's it's my drink of choice if I'm if I'm out. Yeah, uh, me too. And my cocktail of choice is and has been for many many years pre the current trend uh, the Negroni. And I wonder, mm. uh, I wonder, Joel, if the Negroni is responsible for us kind of going backwards and better understanding the likes of vermouth and amari. I think so. I, I mean, I remember being in a bar what. <laughs> seven years seven eight years ago and it was a it wasn't late in the day it was maybe five o'clock six o'clock the bar was filling up with people from work uh, and it did cocktails this bar and it was a sort of pub place in east london in the city and um and i asked for a negroni and uh from underneath the bar i could hear this gentle fizz and crack and the guy put a bottle of peroni in front of me <laughs> and uh, and and i was just like no negroni it's on your menu a negroni and we're in a place now where you know, I went back into that bar a couple of, about a year ago, and they had a dedicated Negroni menu in there at that point. You know, and so <laughs> it's got it has it has grown arms and legs the, the 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 Negroni, and I think it has introduced us to a stronger, more bitter drink. And I think you know, I always say that the, the Negroni is the drinks writer's favorite drink because its its mixer is ice. Uh, it's very mm. it's very strong it's very punchy but yeah it's got that bitterness in there and I think that that has uh, and along with the Aperol Spritz along with the Americano. To, to some, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was going to say, to some degree, the espresso martini, if it's if it's made well and it's not too sweet, you've got flavours that are are less regular to the drinker who thinks that maybe every every cocktail should be sweet. And I think that's a really nice... We're becoming more European in the in the UK in the way that we drink, ironically. Yes, and um, and I think that, that has, that's yeah. done a lot, lot towards it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the... I, I think it's attributed to Dorothy Parker. You should only ever have one Negroni, two at the very most, three you're under the table, four you're under the host. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, it is a very strong drink, of course. And this is a great advantage for the spritz isn't it James you can come in with less than half the alcohol potentially yeah basically that and also give um let's let's look at it this way if the Negroni is that drinks writer's favorite it's almost like the eponymous uh, reaching point where you are I understand drinks when I understand the Negroni the spritz is almost like the halfway journey where you can feel as cool and feel as connected but you're not going to the same level of effort to understand bitter, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. I liken it almost the growth of bitter enjoyment in the UK to, to sort of, as you grow with age, you like stronger, more bitter flavours. It's like the industry is growing with age and wisdom and we're getting more and more bitter as time goes by. I think it's... yeah. So the spritz becomes this, again, this vehicle for us to be able to display these ingredients in a lighter, more approachable way um, and, and a more easy to understand way, I think, than, than the Negroni. The, the Negroni, I think, for me, has always been, it's like the omelette of the chef's test in the kitchen, a balance of three ingredients. There are plenty of cocktails that balance just three or four ingredients, but for some reason, the Negroni has become this test point of, if you can make a good Negroni, then you can work on this bar. <laughs> it's kind of, if you can make a good omelette, you can work in this kitchen. Same kind of uh, 
uh, feel, you, sort of classic start point. You talk about the way drinks are developed and uh, you have a, a, a past, as it were, in a Michelin-starred mm-hmm. kitchen, a number of Michelin-starred kitchens, I think. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so um, you can you can cook as well as uh, mix drinks. Um, how important is that culinary background, do you think, for you in terms of drinks development? It's, it's really interesting. When I left the world of cooking, I, I saw this kind of gap where I thought, you know, chef. The world of chefs operates so differently to the world of bars. But why? Why should they? And now I feel like it, that that line's getting more and more blurred every single day. Um, approaching your ingredients. I mean, I, I worked on the bar not very long ago as a, as a kind of cover and help for some friends that were starting and working on their own business. And every drink, every drink was weighed to the gram. Every ingredient was weighed out. Every serve was weighed out and everything was pre-batched and then sent out as a final product. So you were, you weren't making anything on the bar. Um, that is such a kitcheny chefy way of looking at how to do something. And, and I think this is, it makes sense that that would be an evolution for for bar, and then it would take it a step further and start looking at cooking ingredients and cooking methods. And all of a sudden, you've got really interesting development processes occurring on the bar. And this is nothing new; it's been happening for a while. But it was fresh to me when I came out of that. Mm, Joel, what do you think on the kind of um, cooking mixing question? It's hugely important to have an understanding of flavour, and I, and it's. Mm. I was just discussing with somebody recently about the sort of rise and rise of home consumption of cocktails, people making cocktails at home, and and a little bit like the the introduction of, of, of easy to understand cookbooks and easy to understand manuals of how to cook at home, which were less prescriptive and less scientific. Uh, it gave people a better understanding of what they were eating in restaurants, and you know what what say Jamie Oliver or Delia Smith did for the world of home cooking didn't undermine eating out it actually supported it because people Mm. realized how complicated how difficult it was and what they were doing at home was maybe uh less of a science and more of an art and what they were what was going on in kitchens was maybe a mix of both science and art and it was it was a much more high high value if you like version of, of of just throwing stuff together at home and i think that's i think the idea of what happened in lockdown people making more cocktails at home has led them to appreciate more what goes on behind a professional bar and the equipment needed and the huge variety of ingredients needed and the freshness of some of those ingredients and and i think it's it, it's it's only you can only draw parallels i would say the world of drinks is maybe a decade behind the world of food in in that respect in terms of understanding you know we, we have yes we do have some celebrity bartenders but they're not like the celebrity chefs that are out there and we 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 have world's 50 best bars we also have world's 50 best restaurants but it does lag behind it and i but i think there's a huge amount of parallels that can be drawn and i also think that in some of the bars some of the great bars around the world that are in places like hotels where they're working alongside michelin star restaurants there's a huge amount of shared experience going on as well and sharing of resources and sharing of equipment like rotor apps and even even some of the garnishes you go to somewhere like the Connaught and some of the garnishes come out of the pastry kitchen because they're like little chocolate circles and they're coming out of Michelin star pastry kitchens. So I think, yeah, there's a huge amount of crossover and a huge amount of understanding of flavor. And, and that can only be a benefit to, to both sides of that, of the same coin on one side, the kitchen on one side, the bar. Yeah, that's really interesting. James, you're, I suppose, with Franklin and Sons, you're kind of allowing people uh, in the best possible way to kind of take a bit of a shortcut to their spritz, aren't you, in terms of the, the ingredients you might need to make something a bit more adventurous? That, that's exactly right. Yeah, we, we looking at some of our um, 
dual flavored ingredients, especially our tonics and sodas. Um, you know, you, you're taking guava and lime, which works extremely well with something like a Riesling wine, and you, you're evolving the aromatics in that drink, making a th- essentially a three ingredient drink, but you're only two, you've only got two processes to make that drink. So you're right with that's exactly what we're trying to do. Remove barriers to understanding drinks and flavor. Um, and as Joel said, the, the more you can do that, the more you will open creativity up and allow people to mm. start being a bit more creative in their homes. And then they start to understand, as Joel said, the processes and the thought, the thought processes, especially on the bars that they're then drinking in. It is interesting. This, this, parallel between cooking and bartending is just as, as it's, it's getting closer and closer and closer as time goes by and some of the equipment that's appearing on bars now is just I feel I'm having to stretch to keep up with what the next new item and the next new exploration is on a bar I find it super interesting yeah I mean it's interesting I think I feel I need something adventurous when I go to a bar now because it has to be something mm. post-pandemic that I can't achieve at home and of course I can buy Joel's book and, and achieve quite a lot at home, but then I'm not going to be start making, you know, smoke and things like that. I think that would be mm, yeah. a, a very bad idea for me to uh, attempt to do that. Mind you, actually, ha- having said that, just a slight diversion, if you want to create something smoky that has that dramatic effect, is there any easy way of doing that, Joel, or is it really tricky? Yeah, it's a bit It's a bit tricky. You can buy a smoking gun where you sort of burn little bits of wood and put it under a cloche and do all that, and there's all these sort of, I don't know. To some degree, they're sort of they're they're a little bit of the moment, like big sort of smoking bubbles that you can put on drinks and stuff. And and you know they're great and they get people engaged with cocktails. And we'll see them move out from from high end bars into more high volume bars. And then probably by the end of twenty twenty five, they'll be unbelievably pastiche and, and and no one will be using them again. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's certain ways you, you you can smoke things. A good way is if you've got a cocktail and you do have a cloche. Um, I'm assuming uh, you have a cloche, David. I do have a cloche. Uh, is, that you, is that you can burn a, burn a bit of uh, uh, like a bit of rosemary or something like that and leave that under the cloche. And then when you remove it, the smell of the rosemary will come out. If you're making, a, say, a gin and tonic with, with, with rosemary in it or a martini or something like that. Um, but another good, another easy way of doing it is if you have a soda stream machine is to take some water, put it in the bottle, put something like a sprig of rosemary in the soda stream in, in the water. And then when you infuse it with the CO2, that'll force out the, the flavor of the of, of whatever you're putting into the bottle, into the water very quickly. So you can make things like sparkling uh, rosemary water quite easily and quite quickly with that sort of stuff. And it's just playing around with equipment at home where you can get the best out of it in um, in, in an easy easy way without having to spend hundreds of pounds on a rotor app or or something like that, thousands of pounds on a rotor app. Yes, mm. I think mine might go the same way as my bread machine, to be honest, after about, <laughs> about three months. But um, hey-ho. Um, so, so, James, here's the sort of million-dollar question. What is the ultimate spritz for you? <laughs> that is a great question. We have... Um... We have a few that we've we've sort of been championing over the year. Um, I I really like our uh, grapefruit spritz, which is kind of a a bit of a move on from the Paloma, um, using tequila prosecco, our pink grapefruit soda, and then a simple lime peel to garnish. So we keep the the wine base in there. We bring in a bit of tequila, and we look we add our wonderful pink grapefruit soda, which is extremely fresh and extremely um, natural and, and real uh, and we just elevate that Paloma into another space into the spritz space 
Um, the Paloma is a, obviously a cocktail that's that's growing in popularity. As Joel said, we have these kind of swings of drinks that are becoming more and more popular. I I don't want to, as I said to you previously, David, I don't like pointing out drinks trends because I don't think uh, I don't like to be called out on them. But the Paloma is moving forward at quite a velocity at the moment. And Joel, uh, what would you say is the um, ultimate spritz? Well, unsurprisingly, I'm going to choose one from 60 Second Cocktails, <laughs> which is uh, which is called the Duro Spritz. And um, it's three parts uh, ruby port or tawny port, if you want something a bit richer. Mm. A dash of freshly squeezed lemon juice, a dash of sparkling water, and then three parts uh, Prosecco. And you can play tunes with the Prosecco and the sparkling water, depending on sort of how boozy you want your drink to be. And you just stir it down in a wine glass with ice uh, um, and a... And a uh, slice of lemon or a slice of orange in there and it's absolutely delicious and actually a really good way again as you were saying earlier david i'm i'm, I'm sure there are people out there with bottles of port in their cupboard they don't they get it out once a year at christmas and have it with the cheese board or whatever and but actually you can port is a really great drink to use as a mixer as well and and lengthened in this way in a spritz way with sparkling water and prosecco a little dash of lemon juice for some citrus uh, acidity in there it's absolutely delicious absolutely delicious yeah i mean the chip dry and tonic in Porto. oh fantastic uh, so dry yeah. white uh, port and uh, tonic one of my absolute favorite uh, spritz type drinks yeah. i would say would uh, you're you're both nodding in agreement here enthusiastically <laughs> yeah 100 percent on that one mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. And uh, James, uh, where else um, might we look to be a bit more adventurous with the spritz? So you, you mentioned your sort of take on the Paloma. Where else could we look to do something a bit uh, to surprise our guests with a spritz? So, so for example, uh, another drink that we have is um, much more tropical. Um, so this is called the pineapple spritz. <laughs> I don't know if you can guess what's going to be in this as a flavour. Pineapple, <laughs> um, would it by any chance? <laughs> uh, no, controversially, it's it's actually <laughs> no, it's uh, it is pineapple. This is um, uh, made with a, a pineapple gin base. We then will add. Uh, two parts Cochi Americano vermouth uh, to bring that wine back into the drink or that wine-based spirit back into the drink. And then we add uh, 130 mils of our pineapple and almond soda and a little bit of just a touch uh, of lemon juice with a nice fresh mint sprig to garnish. That in a big glass is bright yellow, very inviting, very tropical, very summery, and crucially not oversweet because we're bringing that vermouth in to, to balance with the bitterness or there's there's varying other directions that you can take we have a summer spritz which is made with uh bloom gin so lovely little floral gin um mm-hmm. we we keep this fairly standard with some prosecco in there and then but again bring in this tropical light lime and guava soda that we make just to take it off in a different direction a little bit of fresh lime juice just to bring some sourness back to the drink um so those are two kind of polar opposite very tropical light spritzes and two totally different directions that you can go in with the spritz but we have plenty of others uh, that, that are all very interesting all easy to see on our website as well if you wanted to come go and find one something fun to make at home yeah there's some good inspiration from you at uh, club onologique in a piece about the spritz as well which was very useful research for uh, this chat um joel <laughs> i was um whilst researching i was doing some actual human research and 
chatting to a friend of mine a couple of days ago about the fact that uh, I'd be talking about the evolution of the spritz. And uh, he said to me, oh, yeah, that's kind of replaced the gin and tonic, hasn't it? And um, Mm -hmm. I wonder, uh, Joel, is, is, is the gin and tonic in crisis at the moment? I think I would start that by saying, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's such a ubiquitous drink that it's under threat from all sides. You know, we talked about the Paloma, we talk about the Spritz, we talk about the Americano, anything that's refreshing and long and easy to make and easy to drink, of course, is going to, is going to nibble away at the, uh, uh, the powerhouse that is the gin and tonic. But the gin and tonics had such great support over the last sort of seven or eight years from an incredible selection of amazing gins and locally produced gins and also amazing tonics on the market too that coming through different flavor tonics that uh, that you've almost got sort of myriad now of different options i'm sure you could probably drink a different gin and tonic every day for the rest of your life and never have the same gin and tonic again and, and i don't think that's a bad thing um but the spritz because it's so easy to make yeah it does it does it provides an alternative and i think uh i, I would only welcome more long interesting refreshing sparkling drinks into into the canon of of long refreshing sparkling drinks mm. because i think it, it helps everybody to up their game and and the gin and tonic's going nowhere but i think the paloma is a good alternative i think the, the, the aperol or, or select or campari spritz is a good alternative and um tequila and tonic you know mm. fantastic drink i love tequila and tonic because it's it is dry out it's it's got a, a lovely earthiness to it super easy to drink i can drink a couple more of them sometimes with a gin and tonic I, I run out of steam after after maybe two or three but you really get you know a, a tequila and tonic you can really dig into in a really nice way so there's lots and lots of options out there but yeah the gin and the gin and tonic beware uh but indeed it's it, but it, but equally the the, the 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 party is open to war and james you've had your hand in uh uh, a gin or two uh, in your uh, career. Um, are you were there for the gin boom? Are, mm. are you in any way concerned that might be fizzling out? No, I think. Um, look, right, the, the, the gin and tonic drink is is almost a victim of its own success in some ways because it it did it came at a time when people were becoming more explorative with with uh, drinks and then the world of gin opened up new flavors as joel said you would go through many gins and not have the same one twice however they started to stretch a lot of producers started to stretch those those gin flavors and the category by adding different things to gin and i think that stretched consumers desire for interesting flavor and then at the same time rum almost started doing the same thing and start pulling people into the, that category um, but that being said, you know, me and many other people, there is a space in your life that nothing will fill like a gin and tonic. Um, yeah. And for me, it just it's it's a drink that will always be there and always be be a strong contender in the in the world of bars. It's just there is also a space in your life that a spritz will fill, and that's that's mm. that's. I think that's the case with most people who enjoy a good drink. Yeah, to be honest, that's a good point, and uh, it depends what you feel like and. Um, how much alcohol you can take and all, all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> um, final thought then, Joel, um, uh, w- w- where's next for the spritz, do you think? Uh, it's going to continue to grow, I imagine. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think because it's so refreshing, because it's so easy to make, people will experiment with it and keep experimenting with, experimenting with it. And uh, and I don't see anything wrong with that. And I, I, I think it's a great drink. I, I, it probably has its detractors out there. You know, I think there's a probably a sigh from certain people when a, when an Aperol spritz is ordered. But it's, I think it's a really tasty drink. And as, as long as, um, you know, as James was saying, it's almost like a gateway cocktail into into things like a Negroni and, a, and, and bitter 
aperitif style uh, drinks. And I think it, that could only be a positive thing for people to, to start on that journey. And if the Aperol Spritz uh, is the is the drink that takes you on that journey, then then fantastic. And James, I know you're always slightly wary of um, calling um, trends. <laughs> you mentioned that earlier on. Um, but uh, we did chat very successfully at the London Wine Fair about drinks trends. So you can definitely, uh, you can definitely do it um, and uh, be on the money. Um, so what's next for the spritz uh, if you had to lay a bet? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, you, you've, you've, as uh, you've called me out right there on the, on the whole trends conversation. Um, yeah, I think... The, the world of the world of spritz is as as Joel said going to continue growing. Um, I think you know Franklin Sun stands for exploration and exploratory flavors, and I think the spritz, as I said, is a great vehicle for exploratory flavors. Um, with it being that gateway cocktail, it is only a great vehicle for opening up people's eyes to other categories and other spirits. Um, Joel said before he likes a tequila and tonic. I love a mezcal and tonic. I think it's a great way to display a mezcal. And a mezcal in a spritz is a really interesting ingredient as well. Now, if it's a mezcal spritz that turns a consumer in onto drinking mezcal, that is a fantastic thing. Uh, it obviously does mean it's very hard to predict the next step from the spritz because it's open to all categories or mixes or wines so <laughs> um, <laughs> it really is very difficult to decide which direction we're going to move in next obviously i'm just hopeful that we continue uh, enjoying long drinks and enjoying sparkling flavors because that's what we specialize in yeah well i think we're gonna do that that's for sure <laughs> so i think uh, uh, that's a, a a safe bet um it's been fascinating uh, chatting to you both and um as ever, you know, I go away with uh, um, some drinks inspiration. Uh, this happens every time I talk to Joel. I go off and make something, you know, the next <laughs> evening, and it'll be the uh, your uh, Duro spritz uh, this time, I think, because that sounds uh, sounds really fantastic. But um, great, um, thank you both for uh, taking some time out and uh, giving us uh, the lowdown on the spritz. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, let's round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC in 2023. And this time we focus on that delicious spritz ingredient, vermouth or vermouth if you prefer. Uh, first, here's a stonking success for Tesco in the vermouth category. Uh, not only did this win a gold medal with 95 points, it also won a trophy, effectively best in show from uh, the judges, including uh, Ivan Dixon, uh, Barry McCochley, uh, Sharon Tebay and uh, Oscar Angeloni. Uh, Tesco Vermouth Bianco uh, from Italy, as the name uh, suggests. Uh, they said this, bright and forward nose in an excellent example of the style with classic herb, dried fruit and clean fruit flavours. Fruity and forward with hints of rosemary, thyme, lemon and acacia. Elegance from the nose to the finish. So well done to Tesco for that. Uh, here's a strong silver medal winning vermouth. Antica Distilleria Qualia Berto Vermouth di Torino Rosso Non Vintage. 
Tasted by the same judging panel, it won 93 points. The tasting note, bitter, sweet, complex and classic. This style is a perfect example with smoke, nuttiness, vanilla and chocolate. The palate is fresh, balanced and has the perfect bittersweet finish. Another strong silver, 92 points. Grupo Campari, 1757. Vermouth di Torino, sweet, non-vintage. The judges said, seductive, savoury nose with eucalyptus mint and balsamic notes. Classic Italian style with red fruit, vanilla and coffee notes. So much complexity that is perfectly balanced and lifted. Also winning 92 points, so another strong silver. Vermouths Miro, Bianco Sweet Non-Vintage. The judges' tasting note, delicate nose with a beautiful base with excellent extraction of fresh herbs and a hint of sapidity. Bold floral characteristics on the nose with clementine, lemon and herbal characteristics. And finally for this selection, the London Vermouth Company, number one, Amber Limon, non-vintage, won a silver as well with 91 points. The judges describe a bold composition of interesting barrel and oxidised flavours, citrus and complex notes developing onto the palate with honeysuckle and stone fruits. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Joel Harrison and James Stimson for a fun and fascinating chat. You can find my monthly wine column at clubanalogique.com and you can, of course, follow Club O on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow Food FM Radio too on those platforms and I am Mr Venusaurus if you'd like to follow me on Instagram or Twitter or both. Uh, For now though, uh, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.